in the spring of 2003. Some of you weren't even alive. Many of you were, though. In the spring of 2003, Katie Wenzel, now better known as Katie Carrington, right there in the middle, my wife, she was a junior in college at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Katie was in charge of a concert for Bebo Norman. Raise your hand if you have ever listened or heard of Bebo Norman. Yeah, some of you younger people, but a lot of us who are kind of in our mid-30s, that was our, our jam. Cadence Call, Bebo Norman. Uh, she was putting on a, a concert for Bebo Norman at her college. Bebo was the featured artist and had a couple openers. One of those openers for Bebo Norman was a young lady named Katie Hudson. Now, Katie Hudson is now more famously known as Katie Perry, the secular singer and songwriter. Katie Perry was opening for Bebo Norman. Katie Perry used to be a professed Christian. I don't know if she still is. My Katie, Katie Carrington, had the job of finding her before she was going to go on stage. So Katie Carrington, putting on the show, had to make sure that Katie Perry was up when it was her time to sing. Katie Carrington was looking for her. Where is Katie Perry? It's time to sing. All this is going on backstage. No one knows what's going on if you're not backstage. Katie found Katie asleep on a couch. And she touched her little foot and said, hey, you're on. And Katie, 16-year-old Katie Perry, went up and opened for Bebo Norman. Now, that's not exactly a remarkable story. But it seems to be cool enough that it's one of those few dozen stories that our family tells maybe every couple years. Something comes up. A conversation about Bebo, conversation about a celebrity, Katy Perry. I don't know, but it just seems to be one of those stories that we, often, that we tell every couple years. What makes it compelling are not all the events, but for us what makes it compelling and a more interesting story is that Katie was backstage. She saw all that was going on. She was running the thing, and she went up to wake up Katy Perry before she was going to open for Bebo. That's what makes it interesting is that we have a backstage pass to the events that are going on. In the book of Ephesians, God is in a sense giving us a backstage pass to what he is doing, what he has been doing, and what he will do in his world. More specifically, he's showing us, he's showing us just how he's reconciling a rebellious and broken world back to himself through Christ by his spirit. I know I've said a few times when we're talking about the providence of God, we don't always get to see what's behind the curtain. And I do mean that in specific particular ways of, of why this trial comes, why this heartache goes on, why there's terrorism in Nigeria. We do know the big picture that God is working all things for his good and for, for our good and for his glory. But in a different kind of way, God wants the Christian to know what he has been up to and just how Christ is at the center of all this and how you, dear Christian, fit into what he is doing. So because we have an epistle and because letters were read in their entirety to churches when they received them, we're going to read all of Ephesians this morning. It takes about 14 minutes to read Ephesians. So go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians. You don't have to. You probably would be helped up. If someone doesn't mind shouting out the page number in the Pew Bible. 976. 976 of the Pew Bible in front of you. I'll give you a, a little bit of, of structure, just very brief structure. Chapters 1 through 3 is full of rich theology. And chapters 4 to 6 is application based on that rich theology. Let's read together. 
Let me pray first. Heavenly Father, your word says that we should devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so we do that now. We pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the mystery of Christ in your word. Help us to treasure him. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is Name not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it, ha- as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles our fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and and in all. But grace was given To each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, 
when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those, to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, Just as Christ does a church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all, of, with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. Three very brief points. Who wrote this letter? Who was this letter written to? And what is the aim of this letter? Verse 1. The first word in the letter is Paul. This is not unique to the Ephesians, but it's always helpful to remember the human author when we're told who he is. Like many of the other letters in Scripture, they, all begin, they also begin with Paul. So just briefly, who is Paul? We know a lot about Paul. We know things beyond mere biographical information about Paul. We know his heart. We know his desires. We know his ambitions. It's hard to know more about someone that you don't actually know that you never met than we can know about Paul. So who is this man on a more biographical level? We'll get to see more of his heart later on as we go through the book of Ephesians. But if you will briefly turn to Acts chapter 7. Just a few pages over to the left. Look at verse 58. Acts chapter 7, 58. This man named Stephen is giving a dynamite sermon. And people are not liking it. He gives this stirring sermon and the people aren't logically saying, as we talked about last week, hey, what he's saying makes sense. Maybe Jesus really is a long-awaited for Christ. Let's hear him out. No, they don't say that at all. In fact, upon hearing his sermon, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together, together at him. Again, church, we want to reason with people into the kingdom. We want to use logic. But look, people don't like logic. So they cast him out of the city. And then in verse 58, they stoned him. And then we see Paul, who here is first called Saul. Children, kids, did you know that the human author of much of Scripture used to be someone who enjoyed the murder of Christians? Who enjoyed persecuting Christians like me and like your parents and maybe like you? This was his job And he thought he was fulfilling what God wanted him to do. So in Acts chapter 7, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirits. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Did God answer Stephen's prayer right there in the life of Paul? Not immediately. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But listen to what Saul was doing. Who is now called Paul. Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was like Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda. This is who Paul used to be. Then he met Jesus. Then Stephen's prayer was answered. Look at Acts chapter 9. 
verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, meaning he still hates the church. He's still anti-Christ. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them to them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way to imprison, to murder, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Church, we don't have time for the rest of this, but there you have it. Paul, the persecutor of Christians. And then after his conversion, Paul begins to be the persecuted. He begins to identify himself with Christians, followers of the way. As for his name change, there's not a ton of consensus, but we are told in Acts chapter 13, 9, that he is beginning to be called Paul. And in the epistles, he's exclusively called Paul. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is someone who has explicit authority from the Lord Jesus to speak on his behalf. An apostle is much like an Old Testament prophet. He is representing Christ. He is put forth on Christ's behalf. He is writing these words on behalf of Jesus Christ. He is writing for the purposes of God because he is commissioned by God. So when he speaks in this way... He is speaking on behalf of Christ. And to make this more explicit, he says, by the will of God. Paul is not proclaiming himself. He is proclaiming the message of Christ by the will of God. God has made this once persecutor of the church a saint with a special, unique calling. Paul knows he's unworthy of this. You can go to 3.8 if you remember in chapter 3 verse 8. He says that I am the very least of all the saints. I think when Paul is saying that, he's not just saying, oh, I'm such a sinner. I'm just, I'm the worst of sinners. He is saying that, but he's actually saying something a little more specific. Of all people to proclaim this message, this mystery of Christ, I used to find Christians, seek them out from house to house, And not just myself, I ordered other groups of people to do this. To imprison them and have some of them murdered. I am the very least of all the saints. God has told Paul uniquely to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul has a unique place in the foundation of the church. It is true that we are to follow him in many, many ways. But he, as an apostle, his calling is unique. So Paul, the apostle from Christ, is writing this. But church, who is really writing this letter? Who is behind the author? Paul is saying one simple thing. This is from God. God is telling you these things. God is the author of this letter. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that? I wonder if you've been sucked into some kind of higher criticism. I wonder if you're even embarrassed by that sometimes. That we believe that God has given us a book of 66 different books compiled into one book. And he speaks through his word. 
Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, we're in the last days still. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So if, if, if God speaks to us in these last days by his son and his son appoints apostles, commissioning them, sending them out. Who is this letter from? This is a letter from the triune God. Christ commissions apostles to write books to be received as his word, his message to the world. God is speaking when we read Ephesians church. Never forget that, that when you hear scripture read, God is speaking to you. This is a letter from God. And if the fact that God communicates to people through a book isn't persuasive enough, if it doesn't convince you that God is imminent and active in this world, he also calls us children, or he calls us children of God, meaning that he says that God is our father. There's a lot I could go into here. I have a whole section in my notes, but I'm going to skip it. But know this, church. Paul wants you to know that we are now children of God through Christ. That's what he is saying in this opening. If you're not here a child of God, if God is not your father, if you haven't been reconciled to God through Christ, you might be thinking, how can these people trust in this book? How can that preacher up there say this is from God so authoritatively, so confidently? Well, let me just... Just tell you that Christians have actually read this book. We're not blindly just accepting it. Like, oh, they say it's from God. I guess it's from God. We've read this book. We've looked at it. How does a human author help? A human author helps apologetically. Historically, we can really point to a real person named Paul, a real persecutor of the church. A real person who turned from a persecuted part of the church to a witness of Christ. That is verifiable existence in history. And his writings can match up with it. We had some, uh, a friend over recently to our house and we were talking with them about the faith and about the scriptures. And, and she said, well, there's a lot of contradictions in the Bible. And as I share the Gospels and the Bible, I'm used to hearing this, right? I'm sure many of you have heard that in the last year. Oh, well, there are a lot of contradictions in the Bible. What do you do with that? First of all, it's a little offensive sometimes when people say that. I'm like, do you, you think I'm just a plain old idiot? Like, I'm like giving my life to this calling. And yeah, there's this book I preach. I say it's the word of God, but there's a lot of contradictions. That's a fleshly response. But it's true. Do you think I'm an idiot? Sometimes it comes to my mind. And they might, and that's okay. There are idiots in this world. I might be among them sometimes. But she said that, and I'm used to responding, okay, well, what specifically are you referring to? And I know that there are people that can maybe get to find some texts that appear contradictory. 99% of the time when I ask someone that question, they have no idea where to turn to. They have no idea of where a contradiction is in the scripture. So if you are here as a guest and you, or you're not yet a Christian and you think there are contradictions in the Bible, show me. Open the scriptures for yourself. Don't type in Bart Ehrman, Bible contradicting. Don't do that. Okay? You read the Bible. You find contradictions and you come talk to us about them. And we'll look at them and I will by the grace of God, show you how that's not contradicting anything. Using Paul as a human author shows that God is imminent with his people. That he's involved in this world and that he's using his people, the church, to accomplish his purposes. You see, Christianity and the authenticity of the Bible, the trustworthiness of scripture is much different than in Islam. In Islam, Muslims believe that Muhammad was in a cave... Somewhere near Mecca. And he had revelations in that cave from the angel Gabriel. 
No one was around. No one was there to verify these revelations. And I just humbly, kindly say that if you ever read the Quran, you will find many contradictions. Intertextually, you will find contradictions, but also you will find contradictions of what the Quran says about the Old Testament and what the Quran says about the New Testament. It's fair to say that Muhammad was not a great reader of the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, it's also fair to say and historically verifiable that he was actually illiterate himself. To Christianity, the Bible is composed, the, the Christianity which is proclaimed from these 66 individual books, all made up of, of various authors, authors over centuries and centuries apart, it all has one theme. And it all centers around this mystery that is revealed in Christ. Christ is reconciling a broken and rebellious people to himself. God is reconciling broken and rebellious people to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. The letter is from God. God uses the Apostle Paul. Who received this letter? You see right there in the text in verses 1 and 2. To the saints who are in Ephesus and to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful. Another way to translate saints is holy one or consecrated ones or set apart ones. He's not writing generally to the citizens in the city of Ephesus. He's writing to the Christians in Ephesus. And I think to the Christians in Ephesus who are part of a church. There are God's, these are God's covenant people set apart from the world to him. These are God's people. These are saints. John Calvin said about sainthood, no man is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. Friends, let me encourage you. Use the saint language in your conversations. Don't let Rome influence you so much that you never call another Christian a saint. Or that you're not emphatically convinced that you are a saint of God. We're used to hearing that word in front of someone like St. Agnes or St. Bartholomew, St. Athanasius, St. Peter. All those people likely were saints. But so are you and I if you are in Christ. You are called a holy one, a consecrated one, set apart for the purposes of God. Christians are saints, and saints are Christians. There's no special class of sainthood. The Bible never talks about that. So what do we know about these specific saints? We talked about it last week, and let me just skim again what kind of, saint, what kind of city these saints live in. We know that these saints, according to Acts 17 and 18, is that right? Acts, Ephesus, yeah, is that right? Just come on, somebody say I'm, 18 and 19. Yeah, I knew it sounded right from the back, back, back. Thank you, Anne. The opera voice pays off. Appreciate that. Acts 18 and 19 that these saints lived in an idol loving city. These saints loved idols, particularly idols formed after the goddess Artemis. And we see that Ephesians 5 5, Paul links idols to our hearts. He says in Ephesians 5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. So Paul is saying, when you think idol, don't merely think of Hinduism and little gods on shelves or in temples. He's saying that idolatry is something that comes from the heart. And idolaters have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We also know that the city is money-loving. This city loves money so much so that they were willing to kill the disciples in their message. We also know that the city has a proud reputation. A couple times in Acts chapters 18 and 19, uh, when, um, when the guy who's not a Christian who's stirring up the riot, Demetrius, when he says, uh, they are going to... 
everyone knows that Ephesus is a city known for the goddess Artemis. And you see, he keeps going to that. It's like saying, hey, hey, don't knock Kansas City. We're the city of Patrick Mahomes. And it's to a point where people have made the reputation of being the city of Artemis a god. Which you can do even with Patrick Mahomes. We also know that this city is quick to violence. They brought up, they wanted to gather up disciples. They wanted to hurt them. They wanted to kill them and silence their message. We know other things about the city, but that's what's coming through in the book of Acts. In light of all that we know about these, these saints in the city, we also know that these saints need encouragement. We also know that these saints need encouragement. And while, yes, it is written firstly to the Ephesians, it's always in God's mind that this letter is written to the saints of all time until Christ comes back. This letter is written to you. Thirdly, what is the aim of this letter? Thirdly and lastly, what is the aim of the letter? The aim of the letter is to encourage weary saints that they are loved by God through Christ. The aim, the purpose of this letter is to encourage weary saints that they are loved by God through Christ. And out of this love, they should love their fellow church members. God wants them, God wants you to open this letter, to see the love of God for you in Christ, and then by the power of the Spirit, to love one another. That is the aim. We can keep drilling down and getting to more specifics, but, but that is the aim of the book. That's, that's what he wants as far as heart change. Now, I want to convince you that the main aim of the book is not theological knowledge. That's not the aim or the main purpose of this book. The main aim is to be encouraged. The way he gets there is by giving to them rich, deep theological knowledge. But so that I convince you that the aim is encouragement, look at verse 1. He has this this odd kind of, uh, uh, he says, to the saints. And what does he say about the saints? To the saints who are faithful. God's calling these saints faithful. And then if you skip over to chapter 3, verse 13, he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Weary Christian, don't lose heart. And if you flip to the very end of the book, look at chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. Here we go. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. What is the aim of God for Ephesians? That your heart may be encouraged. Look at verses 23 and 24. Don't gloss over the conclusions, church. This often tells you what's going on in the book. Look at verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and sisters. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Whose love is he talking about? I think the assumption when I read that, he's talking about God's incorruptible love for us in Christ. He closes his book saying, Christian, your love for God cannot go away. It cannot be eroded. It is incorruptible. It is a strong, enduring love. Christian, dear saints, you will always be love God because you are sealed in God. Because of Christ's love for you. Why does he say it like this? Why does he not end with the enduring, steadfast love of God? This is a unique ending. Here's what I'm saying. Because in a world that increasingly is antagonistic toward Jesus Christ, 
a world that indeed has always been antagonistic toward Christ. In a world where persecution against followers of Christ springs up, our love for him cannot be corrupted because his love for us was part of his plan all along. The backstage pass says that I love you and I always have loved you, dear Christian saints. He's letting us in on what he's doing. And love can encourage the weariest of saints to carry on with spirit-empowered boldness and confidence that no matter what happens in this life, God, God's love has been fixed on you from before he established this world. He has always loved you. And he says that from the moment you became a Christian, your love cannot, for him cannot go away. He is rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us. You are rooted and grounded up in the love of Christ. And God wants you to know the love he has for you in Christ. And so he wants you to be encouraged. And the way to get encouraged is through the backstage pass of this rich theological knowledge of just how much God loves you. And he wants you to be convinced that because his affections for you were from before the foundations of, the, of this earth. If you are in Christ, your love for him cannot go away. Encouragement is the goal of this book. And the way to get there is God disclosing to us the mystery of the gospel, which ha- was not made known to others in past generations, but is now revealed to the apostles and prophets by his spirit. The mystery is that God is creating one new people centered around Christ. It's what Isaiah and all the prophets long to see. It's what they foretold and they never saw. But friends, it's what you and I see and taste. That Christ indeed is good and satisfying. And there are rich treasures for the saints in Christ. So saints, be encouraged that God is reconciling all creation in Christ to the praise of his glory for the increasing of your joy. Are you weary are you a tired mother? Are you a parent weary of your, raising your kids? Kids, are you struggling to joyfully obey and trust your parents? Are you an employee who begrudgingly goes to work? Are you a boss who sees yourself as superior to those under you? Are you in a marriage that never seems to be getting healthier? Are you longing to be married yet the Lord has not fulfilled those desires? Or are you wanting to be a missionary for Christ, concerned with the cost? God addresses all those things in Ephesians after he unfolds the plan for us. This rich theology is meant to encourage us no matter how weary we are in this world. And friends, through this series of Ephesians that we're starting, God is calling you to come and behold the mystery of Christ now revealed to you by a spirit. His plan for you in part is is part of his plan for reconciling the world to himself, all centered around the cross of Christ. Before I pray, let's spend some time in silent reflection upon these truths.